In this episode, we wait out there with Philip Chamberlain from Lyons, Colorado. Philip is a guide at Kirk's Fly Shop, Grand Lake, whose love for fly fishing is deeply connected with family, past, present, and future. We discuss the Encampment River, fishing with family, and winter fly fishing techniques. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite, and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there. Welcome, Philip. Thanks for being on the Wait Out There podcast. Hey there, Jason. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here too, and I'm excited to talk to you. And um, how'd you get started in fly fishing? And um, can you talk a little bit about how that journey is tied to what we say at Wait Out There, which is fly fishing is special but not elite? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my introduction to fishing in general and fly fishing, um, I was about three years old and my grandfather took me bass fishing out in Morrison, Colorado, out near the golf course. And I caught a smallmouth bass and to see how excited my grandfather was. And it made me as a three-year-old feel super happy. And I still, to this day, have that picture sitting over my fireplace. We holding about a 12 inch smallmouth. It's unre- It's hilarious. But when I was five to seven, I don't really remember when, but it was around that age I had this huge dream of fly fishing because I'd always watch my dad go do it. And my grandfather, they'd go out and they'd always talk about how they would fish in the years past back in the seventies and eighties and all their competitive stories, you know, and me being five years old, hearing that I needed to be a part of that. I wanted to be like dad and grandpa, you know? Yeah. And so I vividly remember a Christmas when I was five to seven, dad bought me my first fly rod. And it was a Cortland eight foot six competition series, um, five weight. And I, I remember like giving him a hug and like crying because I was so happy. I finally get to be like dad and go fishing with him. You know, it was huge for me. And I remember he took me to the Roaring Fork River just outside of Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was just waving a line in the air. And I thought I was the coolest kid in the in the planet, you know, just on cloud nine. I loved it. And things really progressed from there. I wanted to go fishing with my dad all the time. And, um, how it all really started was when I was five years old, I remember this. So yeah, I guess it was five, uh, when I was really introduced to trout and I was introduced to trout in a very big way. Um, and how I mean by that is we did, my dad and I, when I was five, we did a backcountry trip in Holy Cross wilderness area to a few lakes up there. And, um, it was a six mile hike in, I'm five. I got my fishing gear. I don't know what we're doing. That's and hardcore for a yeah, five-year-old. That's we get hardcore. up to the camp and I'm opened up to this whole new world. I mean, there's a lake right next to our tent and it doesn't matter what fly you put in, you're catching a 12 inch brookie. Okay. Awesome. I was catching brookies and just lit up as a little kid. It was awesome. But then the real adventure began the next day 
we went up to the Alpine Lakes above camp for the big cutthroat. And that's what Colorado is known for. And I didn't know this. You know, I'm a little kid just getting introduced to it. And I remember vividly sitting on this cliff wall with my dad. And my dad catches this 18 to 19 inch Colorado River cutthroat out of this lake. And at this time, we harvested fish. You know, I will admit that as a fly fisherman, I will harvest fish. And I have a picture of me holding this thing, bleeding under my um, fingers. (laughs) And I'm just smiling ear to ear. Yeah. And... So I was just hooked. I thought trout were the coolest thing. This was like the biggest experience of my life. Huge. Not many people in the world ever get to do this. So how blessed and thankful am I to be introduced to that? Like, thank you, dad, so much. Right. That's what started the kindling of fishing right there. Yeah. And then we, every fall, we'd go to these uh, stock ponds out near Steamboat, Colorado, and we'd go woolly bugger fishing. And I remember I was like eight or nine years old. I had a float tube. And I'm out there and a little kid kicking around, fly fishing with dad, uh, catching stocked rainbows and having a blast. And, you know, this was just a progression until I was about 13. And then I kind of had a dull moment in my life where uh, I moved down to Florida and stopped fly fishing for a while. You know, parents separated and the whole, you know, child moves with mom type deal. Yeah. And uh, at first I was really angry about it and I lost my way. I wasn't fishing for a few years. I literally didn't want to play sports. I was huge into sports at the time. I just was very kind of depressed, if you will, as a 13-year-old. Big life yeah. change. Yeah. Well, I turned 14, and uh, this guy, Jake Yakovone, introduces fishing back into my life. And Jake Yakovone was huge. Um, he took me out on his boat multiple times a week, and I'm talking three to four times a week. I almost didn't graduate high school because of this guy. Down in Florida? Down in Florida. Saltwater fly fishing. Saltwater fishing. Fishing. So it kind of progressed. So for the first two or three years, I was just trolling and bait fishing, catching grouper, snook, redfish, tarpon, you name it. And it rekindled my love for the outdoors and fishing from that dark time I had in my life. And well, I got bored of spin fishing. No offense against it, you know, but we caught a lot of fish and it was just like, you know, I missed the challenge of fly fishing. I always, you know, and so I bought, I didn't buy it. I got my old fly rod out again, my five weight. And I started bass fishing in Florida with a five weight. Nice. And I was catching like five to 10 pound large mouths on top water down there. Yeah. And it lit me up to the point where, uh, I'm a senior in high school and parents need to find a graduation present for me. Right. And I'm like, I want a 10 weight saltwater fly rod. that's when it started so i'm 18 just graduating high school and i finally get my first big boy fly rod for the salt and i'm out there wade fishing in tampa bay catching jack crevel sea trout flounder small snook redfish all in this brand new 10 weight i have and i'm like well how can i go out further so it progressed into working at this bait and tackle shop cutting squid and shrimp and not really knowing where I'm going with it and getting told, Oh, you'll never guide in Florida. Cause you're just a bait guy. Yeah. And so like, I was like, well, I want a guide and all these guides are telling me I can't guide. So how can I get around that? <laughs> yeah. So I bought myself a cast net and went to the piers in Florida and started catching bait and giving it away for free. Well, people wanted to know how they could repay me. And I said, well, you're going to go to this bait and tackle shop and you're going to ask for me personally. And I'll sell you stuff. 
Well, I got promoted <laughs> to the sales floor after a few times of that actually being successful. Nice. And, and so I'm out on the sales floor, and that's when it kind of progressed into, shit, I could probably start guiding if I sell myself in the right direction. Yeah. And so I actually went online and found a skiff on Craigslist and uh, <laughs> started running trips under the table through this bait and tackle shop. As that was my first guiding experience. I was like 19 years old, living in Tampa Bay, and just hucking shrimp and um, little shrimp patterns and clouser patterns out there, hoping we'd catch some fish with people. And it was a great time. It was a huge learning experience for me. But what the best thing was is it made me realize what I wanted to do in life. I knew I wanted to guide, but I didn't know yeah. what for yet. You know, I had these two great childhood experiences of Colorado and Florida. And I was like, do I become a saltwater guy or do I become a trout bum? Uh, <laughs> what, what, what's the decision here? I was going to ask you before we start. I was like, how did you decide that you want to be a professional fly fisher man or that that was the profession that you were going to, you know, was it a deliberate thing that happened by chance? And it kind yeah. of, it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful story. Um, so this is where it kind of, <laughs> falls into place here is I'm like, do I want to be a trout bum or do I want to be a saltwater guide? And I'm like, well, I don't really like Florida. Like there's just a lot of people. There's not really camping. I grew up skiing. I can't do that here. Like right. man, Colorado sounds awesome for me. So when yeah. I was 21, I moved back to Colorado and moved yeah. back in with my dad. He gave me an awesome opportunity. And yeah. I was like, dad, I just want to restart my life in Florida or from Florida. It wasn't really working out for me. What can we do? Well, he was running a woodworking business. So I started doing woodworking with him, not guiding at all, yeah. but we fly fished all the time together. And I had a lot of time to go fly fishing because it's my dad. Right. I would work maybe four days a week and I'd be like, well, I'm going to go fish for two or three and go camp and fish with my buddies. Yeah. And what's cool about that is there was a career change that naturally took over Yeah. where I started an Instagram page because I was catching a lot of fish and I, and I just met Betha at the time back in 2016. Yeah. And she looked at my phone and she goes, dude, you have like 300,000 fish photos on your camera phone. <laughs> you kind of like you, trout. <laughs> what do you do with them all? And I'm like, I just like taking photos of my experiences. I don't know. Like and yeah. she goes, do you know about Instagram? And I was like, not really. And she shared <laughs> Instagram with me back in 2016. Yeah. And so we started sharing these photos yeah. and our experiences. Well, then we had this idea. No, and it's sadly no longer exists, but we created a page called Colorado Fly Fishing Couple. Mm -hmm. And this is how we became guides and got in the industry. It's unbelievable all throughout social media. So yeah. Betha didn't know how to fly fish and I'm teaching her how to fly fish. And we thought this was a great platform to share with people on social media Yeah, where we have a woman struggling with pain that wants to go fishing. What is the fishing doing for her? And people loved it. We watched Betha go from getting skunks and just taking photos on the river yeah. to learning how to tie flies to then soon out fishing myself. Like yeah. literally, like this girl is unbelievable on the river. And all of a sudden, randomly, Betha and I get this message from Brush Creek Ranch in Wyoming going, hey, we're hiring guides. We really would like to see if you guys would fit this operation. Would you like to come out and visit us? 
well, we did just that. <laughs> yeah. We came out, visited them, and we quickly found out this was a very high-end guest ranch in Saratoga, Wyoming called Brush Creek. And they provided a wonderful experience for ourselves. Yeah. Um, they put me through an Orvis endorsed guide school. Wow. Didn't, all expenses paid. They taught me how to row a raft, taught me how to take professional photos for clients with the fish they catch. And I was just a whole dream come true that kind of fell in my lap. And all it was, was I had a dream of coming back to Colorado and just fly fishing and putting my heart into it. Right. Yeah. And sharing with how much I loved fly fishing and teaching it and putting it out in the world, it kind of just found me. It was a beautiful thing. Uh, and so I went with it and I did it. I worked in Wyoming for a year and made the decision that winter in Wyoming was not for me because I'm a yeah. ski bum at heart and I yeah. wanted to ski in the winters. So um, I chose to do my full year in Wyoming and then kindly resign. And well, then I needed to find a new fly shop, right? And so I had this idea of, well, I'm not a guide at Brush Creek, but I have this awesome resume I just built up to become a guide. Let's go talk to Kirks. So I walk in one day in March back in 2018 or 2019. And uh, he's doing a fly tying demo in there. Um, Kirk. And there's like nine other people sitting there, right? And what are they doing? They're learning how to tie and Kirk's teaching. There's, and it's like a free class. Well, me being me, I'm a curious soul. I walk right in there and I'm like, hey, what's going on here? And I sit down and there's an open vice and I just kind of play dumb to it at first. And I just tie like a quick little San Juan worm, something easy, act like, you know, I'm just kind of bare, being humble. Yeah. Well, then I see this lady next to me really struggling with tying, trying to do a whip finish. And my nature, I can't just watch her struggle. I had to help her. So I show her how to whip finish and Kirk kind of looks at me and goes, whoa, he did that really fast. And then he goes, what else do you know how to do? And I started showing him all these little tying tricks I knew how to do. And before I knew it, I was teaching the fly tying class with Kirk. Yeah. And by the end of it, I got a job offer to go guide at Kirk's for that season. And I started my first year as a little greenhorn, just, uh, I thought you were going to say that you were, you were running into people on the river and telling them, helping them catch fish, and then, <laughs> that, that and then how can I repay? How can I repay you? Go into Kirk's <laughs> and tell them that you you asked for me by name. And, that does uh, happen, you know. Like, and I'm one of those guys where you know you'll find me on the river. If you give me a quick smile and wave, I am so happy to tell you where I'm fishing, what I'm using. Shit, even excuse my language, but no. go fish the same hole with me. Let's have an experience together. Cause that's yeah. what fly fishing is. Yeah. And I want to get into that a little bit, but I don't want to get sidetracked um, from my oh, little yeah. story into this is started my first year at Kirk's just running around as a little shoppy, barely guiding. And what's a uh, shoppy define shoppy is literally you just work in the shop and sell flies okay. and sell. Trips. Don't guide. You just, you just sell work trips the register and work the register. Yeah. That's, okay. that's it. But I, I thought, was in the industry. But... I had an opportunity to make something of myself when I saw that. Yeah. And so I started telling the manager, hey, I know what I'm doing, guys. I'm from Wyoming. Let me have a trip, da 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 And they're like, all right, fine. We'll let <laughs> you shadow. So I'm not even getting paid. I'm just shadowing the guides at this point, restarting my fly fishing career after one year. So no big deal. But after a few trips, they quickly realized I knew what I was doing, and they let me loose, which was yeah. beautiful. I really appreciated about that, about Kirk's. And 
by the end of my first year, I ended up finding myself running a four night, five day llama tour. So I knew they trusted me. And that's when the drop llama tour, a llama llama like going to the Rocky Mountain national park with llamas, with llamas camping and going cutthroat fishing. (laughs) And I'm literally, (laughs) the llamas are your, the llamas are our pack, pack, packs. Okay. Okay. And so this is in August of 2019. I remember doing this and crying on the hike up. Really? And my clients are like, Phil, why are you crying? And I'm like, this is a dream come true, folks. You have no idea. Like yeah. I did this when I was five, then I thought this was the coolest thing in the world. And now I get to share this with other people. This is amazing for me. Yeah. You know, and I got to share, you know, five days and four nights in that backcountry of what I grew up doing as a kid and instilling the love of mother nature and the wilderness and national parks into other people. And that was huge for me. Yeah. And then long story short, that's where I'm kind of at today is Perk saw how hard I was working and everything I put in there. And he gave me the management position over at his Perk's fly shop in Grand Lake. Cool. And now I'm sitting there just running a whole fly shop with a team of nine guides. I wouldn't even say I'm running. We're working together here as as a great team. And it's all about no secrets, sharing water with people, what flies work and getting people a great experience because that's what it's all about, right? Yeah. It's all about teaching and having people stoked on learning about fly fishing because that's what gets me fired up, right? Yeah. That's awesome. Is it tough at all that you, do you lose time on the river because you've got the increased uh, responsibility of management? 100%. So I will say um, from May through September, I don't fish. I fish through other people. Yeah. And it's amazing. Um, I never thought I would be okay with that. I'm, I'm pretty competitive. And I will say I'm a little selfish when it comes to fishing. I want to catch the biggest fish. I want to catch the most fish. I'm not going to lie about it. Yeah. But I never thought this would be a part of me where yeah. I literally sacrificed my entire summer season of fishing for myself to take others fishing and give of myself and teach fishing. And I will say I find more reward in that now than catching a fish for myself. Teaching. I see, yeah, teaching. Absolutely. I learn more about fly fishing and about fish and about bugs teaching about. Yeah. You it. learn and a so, lot teaching. Because, and a lot of it is, is, you know, someone will just ask a question and you're like, Oh, I don't actually know the answer to that. I was just going to say, so I've <laughs> never been a guide or anything like that, but I have instructed a lot. And the thing about instructing that is you, uh, you have to know your whys. You have to understand why you do things really well. Because when people ask questions, if you don't, if you don't know why you're doing it, then you can't really explain it very well. You know 100%. what I mean? So if yeah. you're not on, uh, if you're not thinking about this, so it forces you to reflect on those things, and it and and, and it forces humility too, because you have to be willing to say, you know what, I don't know. Let me go find out, or let me uh, let me ask someone else, or maybe ask this person, or something like that because if you just bs them they're gonna they're not gonna ask you any more questions because they're gonna be like oh well this guy's just gonna bs me if i ask him a question especially in guiding you know um this isn't a cheap industry we all know that you know i've i actually compare fly fishing a lot to golf (laughs) oh i tell my clients you know you're hiding you're hiring a caddy for the day you know yeah and you're absolutely right where you know you really need to know what's going on but there's times where the trout and the rivers throw a curveball at you 
and the client's going to ask you something and you're not going to know the answer and there's no getting around it. You have to be 100% honest with these people and guiding. Um, and you just tell them, look, man, I have no idea. This is a new one on me. We're going to learn together today. And you yeah. have fun with it. And what's really cool is you learn together and it's usually a wonderful experience and you end up catching a few fish along the way. Um, yeah. But having your why in teaching, I think, is absolutely huge. Um, yeah. My why personally and why I guide, it took me, you know, this is my fifth season doing it full time now or fourth actually going on fifth. And um, literally it's why, why, why did I want to guide? At first it was, I just want to fish and be on the river every day. Well, shit, yeah. that's pretty selfish, man. It is yeah. in my opinion. My why now is I want to share this with so many people and as many people as I can in hopes that they find a connection to it or want to learn about it because the I feel the more people that love and learn and want to do this, the more people that will conserve the waterways we have and enjoy today. So my family, like my daughter Isabella, can go fishing and do what I do today because that's huge for me. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, I mean, I'd like to, I'd like to share something you wrote, if that's okay. Go for it. Um, you wrote, showing Isabella the ropes at a young age. Her first brown trout she encountered, she was two months old. Now she's full of life on the river while she sits on my back. Always chattering up a storm, laughing and touching every fish we catch. I didn't realize how beautiful this would be until I actually experienced taking my daughter fishing. I love you, Bug, and I can't wait to teach you how to cast. <laughs> I mean, that's great, man. I'm always tearing up. That's really cool. And... um so you just talked about sharing that experience. Why is sharing that experience with your family so important for you? And, and how do you, how do you incorporate that into your life? Oh man, that's going to make me cry a little bit, Jason. I mean, fly fishing is literally the glue that keeps our family together. Um, and the reality of it, um, that's how me and Beth grew close together. Our right. first date, I told her like, we're going fly fishing. If you want to be with me, like this is what I do. I'm a, I love it so much. I can't get away. I remember when she told me that story and I was like, <laughs> you know, okay. and so yeah. like, that's what happened. I was a little crazy back then. I won't lie, <laughs> but yeah. uh, it was huge because we would have our own issues at home, just like every couple. Right. And yeah. we go out on the river and we'd fight like brother and sister. I mean, bad. I mean, we yeah. would fight like brother and sister, but then we would overcome that learn together about fly fishing, be in a beautiful place in nature yeah, and catch some fish and have, and literally at the end of it, we're like, Holy shit, look at the day we just had. Wow. That was yeah. so awesome. And that has gotten us to get so close. It's brought us so close. Yeah. Um, I mean, to the, even to the point where, I mean, we had a kid, you know, that's how close we are. And are we married? No, but we're going there. That's definitely right around the corner. That conversation's been had and we're going to be there. But to have Isabella in the mix now, it's not, it, it's hard because like I said, I'm selfish <laughs> and this has been a huge learning experience for me. And it's been a beautiful one. Um, at the beginning, like I was like, man, we have a kid. Like I'm not going to be able to fish as much. Oh no. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know? What are we gonna do? Well, that's well, no. what I was gonna ask. How do you? Well, how do you? Do? No, how do you handle that? On the river. That's what we're gonna do. Yeah. And so we we got the equipment and the gear, and literally, like you just said, two months old, sixty days old, 
we had her on the Eagle River on Mama's chest, and we caught a 16-inch brown trout and introduced her to her first brown at 60 days old. And it was 31 degrees out yeah. in February when we did that. <laughs> And it was just like this huge like confidence boost for us as a family. Like, wow, we're pretty strong as a family. We can do a lot together. Look what we just accomplished with our little girl. Like, who knows yeah. what's going to happen here? Mm-hmm. And that's where having Isabella in this family has created that big why for me as why I guide now. Before yeah. I had the family, it was all about me. I want to be on the river. I don't want to work in the office. Right. It's not about that anymore. It's about a bigger picture of making sure people want to conserve fly fish, not even fly fishing, conserve nature yeah, as a whole, like just protecting yeah. what nature is. For your family and your daughter. And, and so she has. Daughter, a- that's the huge aspect. Yeah. That's what's gotten me to become aware of it. But yeah. now once you're aware of it, the, the dream and the picture goes bigger. I mean, that's human nature in my opinion. And now it's, how can I expand that to everybody? Mm-hmm. And now like the game is going to get bigger with guiding for me yeah. because more, I, I feel like it's my duty as a human being to make sure people care about mother nature and want to conserve it. And I, I feel like being a guide and being a camping guide and working as a ski patroller in the winter, plugging myself in nature wholeheartedly gives me that opportunity to one experience nature and teach about and learn about it, but also teach it, but also share it with others. Yeah. Well, I think you're doing that. I think you're doing that, man, for sure. How, how do you, do you have any lessons learned for people that, that want to start with their family and they've got children at a young age? So a lesson learned is um, what's on the other side of fear folks Seriously, I know you're scared to do it. Me and Beth were scared to do it. We didn't want to do it, but we did it. And it was beautiful. You know, on the other side of fear, usually your dream's sitting right there. Um, So if your dream with your family, and it might not even be around fishing, it'd just be getting your kid out on a backpack to go hiking for the day. Well, if you're scared to do it, well, kind of assess why you're afraid to do it. And then address those fears. Address those fears and then go do it. You know, and you, you become stronger as a human being, your family will become stronger because of it. Yeah. And at the end of it, you feel great. You really do. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I don't doubt you, man, for sure. It's one of the reasons that we moved to Utah was so that we could habitualize our children's relationship with nature. Like we just want them to be addicted to the outdoors. We want them to be outside, especially today. I just think that it's healthy for them to have that um, for us, for our family. But, uh, can you talk a little bit about how you address some of those fears? Cause I think it's important to understand that you did have them. Uh, it wasn't like you weren't worried. I mean, so how do you mitigate, you know, um, you know, how do you keep your young, young ones safe or what do you do that? So to make sure that you're not being irresponsible, but you're also having mm-hmm. these experiences because, uh, you know, obviously you love your family and you want them to be safe. Absolutely. So, you know, things that I've done to address the fear is one, equipment. You know, you're afraid of your kid maybe getting hurt, cold, harsh elements hitting them, you know, things like that. So one, address those fears by just look at the equipment that's available for a toddler in your family today. 
mm-hmm. we're in 2021. There's amazing things that have been developed to enjoy the outdoors with your family. Um, yeah. So that's one was look up equipment that will help ease your fear on, well, what if my daughter gets too cold? What's some of the equipment that you have used besides like, I mean, oh yeah, just with some of the equipment that you use. So used. good equipment that is essential for the, like just taking your yeah. kid on the river is like a kid carrying backpack where the kid sits on your pack on your back and you have a little umbrella over her head or their head to keep them shaded or actually protect their head from a back cast. Right. Literally, you know, you're not going to hit them in the back of the head, back of the head with a fly and yeah. you know, they're protected from the sun and they're safe on your back strapped to you. So that like definitely made me as a uh, adult and a parent feel okay. Taking Isabel on the river. Cause when I, d- I didn't know those existed, I'm just a, you know, 27 year old fly fishing guy. Yeah. I'm not focused on baby stuff. And so when I found out I was having a kid, I was in fear of, well, how are we going to bring her on the river? Well, that piece of equipment made me feel better about bringing her on the river. Then other huge things like they make little fishing shirts for your kid to keep mm-hmm. the sun and bugs off of them with little bug spray already embedded in the shirt. So you don't even have to spray your kid mm-hmm. with the nasty DEET stuff. Like I know yeah. I don't want to put Isabella in harm's way with DEET and bug spray at six months old. That's not fun. So that bug stopper shirt literally made for a little kid was huge for us. Yeah. And and then obviously, you know, there's warm clothing you can buy and all that stuff and you can go along the lines. But the two huge things for me to just get your kid outside with you as a family, it's not even fishing, is that carrying pack Mm -hmm. and the sun shirt with the bug stopper built in because it's keeping the bugs off. And then, you know, your kid's secure with you and you have a backpack full of everything you need, diapers, milk, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, to the point where I've hiked Isabella with Betha three miles into a cutthroat lake at four months old. And we have her sitting in a hammock lakeside and we're changing diapers and catching cutthroat. (laughs) Is it a lot of work? Absolutely it is. But is it worth it? Uh Uh-huh. Because our hope and dream, and we hear about it a lot, is if you share things at a young age with your kids, they're more than likely going to be in love with it. And that's our hope and dream is that Isabella falls in love with nature. Hopefully she likes fishing too, but my main hope is she just wants to be outside. You know, I want to see my kid away from the TV and the screens and I want to see her doing stuff in nature, whatever that looks. And Mm -hmm. my way of expressing it to her currently is fly fishing. Yeah. I think that's really special and important. And I just wrote an article uh, for the blog about this, but I feel like even if they don't stick with it, at least you gave them that tool. At least you gave them something they can go back to. Like maybe she gets into business and she loves uh, marketing or she loves, uh, she wants to be a doctor and she goes to med school and she becomes a nurse or a physician or something like that. If there's a time in her life later on where she encounters difficulty or stress or anxiety or, you know, negative things, there's something in the back of her brain, sort of like the memories you've had as a child with your family, right? That they can, you know, I'm going to try this. I'm going to go back and then it can rekindle that, you know, it can uh-huh. help with a lot of things. That's my, that's my assessment. Having talked to a lot, you know, a lot of people that have told me stories like that. So I think that whether or not they stick with it is, is, uh, 
I think they're more likely to stick with it for sure if they're introduced at a young age. And I'm not going to like, that's part of the article is like, I've got selfish reasons for taking my son on the river. Like (laughs) I I, I want him to love fly fishing so we could go together. But, you know, if he's not interested and he wants to go mountain bike or ski or, you know, play soccer or something like that's fine. I'm not going to not hang out with the kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, But anyway. um, And then I would imagine too that, there was a learning curve or, you know, I think there's a misconception maybe like you see the backpack in the river and you're like, you imagine, all right, like for me, I know the way that I fish. I'm like the name of the the podcast is weighed out there, right? Like you're waiting in there. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not like taking my kid with the backpack. Like I'm not like wading across the river. Like where if I slip or fall now we're in a a bad place. Like you said, you can just go up to a lake or even if you you just carry them up in a normal carrying case and like put them on the bank of the river or, um, you know, on the bank of the lake or something like they're out there. They're very out there. Yeah. So I don't know. Was that something that you guys got used to or so, took turns? Because exactly. as a team too, one person could be fishing, the other one's minding the child and vice mm-hmm. versa. So crossing the river doesn't really happen with Bella. Um, right. You know, it's fall now. The Colorado's like ankle deep in some spots. So me, I feel okay. I've crossed with her a few times in ankle deep water in the fall. Yeah. Um, but what we did, you know, m- during main season – um, as we picked more accessible areas, you know, we are very blessed to live in Colorado. Right. Yeah. You pick the spots that work for kids. Yeah. You can pick spots that work for you. Yeah. And yeah. Like literally be like, Hey, I'm going to go fish the Eagle river because it's right along I 70 and I can literally pull the car off five feet from a hole yeah. and there's 20 inch fish right there. That's Colorado, you know, it's unbelievable. And so that's how we've gotten away with it. <laughs> yeah. I remember fishing. I was out visiting in-laws and uh, I wanted to go fishing and I was, uh, where am I going fishing? And I thought about where I want, I knew I want to take my son, uh-huh. you know, but um, I'm like, well, I'm going to go by myself and I'm not going to go like where I want. I'm going to go to where I, I know that I can probably find water that is more suitable and you know for him it's closer it's not as vertical you know and so i went up deckers and i found a couple sections that were like this is totally weightable totally safe you know like and um so i just think that like yeah exactly like you said being deliberate about where you take them is important too you're not going to take them in the heart of winter with you know you got to walk through feet of snow and stuff like that right you can, yeah, you can just be smart about it. But and one thing to kind of recap on it all, just for the people out there is, you know, a lot of these spots that are very accessible for you and your family, they're not a secret. Yeah. People will be more than happy to share that knowledge with you. So, you know, I know a lot of people that are new and trying to learn in this industry are intimidated by experienced people in the industry. I get that. I understand that. And understand that you know coming from a place of humility and just saying hey i want to take my little kid fishing on the river where's an easy spot i will almost guarantee a lot of us in the industry yeah we might look grumpy and old but we'll be more than happy to share that little public access right off the highway yeah because it's not a secret it's not a secret and that's the way i look at i mean you know i I don't look at spot burning as like, if it's a no, like if it's not a secret, it's hard to burn it other than right. like you're, you're increasing, um, 
awareness, I guess, maybe. But I mean, it's not a secret that the South Platte is there. Like we're going to talk about later, you know, the Encampment River. Like, uh-huh. you know, it's different to say like the Encampment River versus, hey, I go here, do this, you know, that type mm-hmm. of thing. But Absolutely. I think that's a that's a great point, man. You ready to change topics a little bit? You want to talk about the Encampment River? Sure. Let's All right. Going. Why is the Encampment River special to Philip? Why Ooh. is that a special place for you? There's a few reasons why. Um, first reason, I grew up with a little red brick on my dad's bookcase my whole life. And my dad always read John Gearock books. So there's like four or five John Gearock books and with this red brick kind of holding them up on the bookcase. I didn't know what the heck that meant at all. Okay. Well, the whole Brush Creek story comes into play. And I'm like, Dad, I'm going to go work at this Brush Creek Ranch. You ever heard of it? And he goes, his jaw drops. And he goes, oh, my gosh, Phil. That's, I, used, I fished that with my dad in 76 in the encampment in 1980. You know, that's an unbelievable valley to go fish. And I was yeah. like, are you serious? Grandpa Dick used to fish here? And it was yeah. just like I got chills. Like my family has fished here back in the seventies. Like wow, you know. Like I now I get to experience this, and I'm like so yeah. excited, you know. And um, so that's kind of reason one is there's a lot of family history in that valley where the encampment is. It's huge. Um, and another reason why it makes it special for me is that's where I learned how to become a serious fly fishing guide. Was that river? Um, I had a lot of tools at my disposal working at Brush Creek in Wyoming. Um, I had a Polaris Ranger with a rod vault and 27 miles of private river. I had a raft at my disposal. I had public access. But I found this little spot on the encampment that my dad fished back in 1980. And that was shared with me by my fly fishing mentor who we'll get into here in a minute. Um, They showed me this river. And I got obsessed with it because I got skunked on it three times, but I could (laughs) see these huge, huge wild fish, right? And to get into the wild fish is these, this river has not seen a stocking truck since 1974. Wow. So these fish are very special. They're all wild, naturally reproducing strong fish. Yeah. And when I'm getting skunked, knowing I'm a guide, it makes me want to learn and be better. Right. Yeah. So instead of giving up and say, oh, I'm just going to go to the North Platte River that everybody knows and go catch fish because it's the superior fishery in the valley. You know, I'm going to go fish that and take the easy way out as a guide. What do you mean by it's the superior? It's the superior fishery because there's like 10,000 trout per river mile in it in this valley. More fish in it. Way more fish. And um, they're just in my there's more tinge to the water. Yeah. So it's you you can use bigger line, fish are a little smaller, they're not as spooky. So they're easier to catch, you know. That's gotcha. the easy way out in my opinion as a guide. Okay. Okay. And so I wanted to be a better guide. You know, I look at guys like Pat Dorsey that guide the hardest canyon in the world, Cheeseman. Yeah. And he's very successful at it. And that's my dream is to be a that echelon one day and uh I was like, well, if I can figure out how to guide beginners on this river that I'm an experienced angler and I'm struggling, if I can get other people to do it, I'm going somewhere, right? Yeah. And so I got obsessed with this place where every day after guiding or after work at this ranch, I would go fish it. And to the by point, yourself, by myself. 
See, this is where like people, when they have passion for things, this is where it comes out. Like yeah. I just worked all day doing, I, I mean, you're jobbing it. You're helping people catch fish. Yeah. You're getting the boats ready. You're getting the meals ready. You're doing all the stuff that you need to do. Mm-hmm. And, and now you're done. All of it, you're not I, going to like drink a beer and watch the game. You're going back to the river to get better. And so this is, is a huge thing. I used to get made fun of by the other guides at that ranch. Phil, why aren't you going to the bar in Saratoga to drink uh, beer or beer and whiskey with us? Just like Jason said. <laughs> you know, well, because I have Betha at home and also the encampment's here. I don't get to live here every day. Like, right. I'm obsessed with this place. And so to the point where, I mean, it was like, I know there's three fish behind this rock. Down in this mm-hmm. riffle is a really good hole. There's probably 50 fish in it. They like this fly, this depth on the rig, kind of just dialing it in. Yeah. And so I would say I started in May at Brush Creek, and I would say by August, I felt like I was ready to guide the encampment because I obsessively fished it almost every day. And I started to get a lot of clout for it. A lot of the guides were going, you have 27 miles of private water. What are you doing? This is a public fishery over here in Wyoming. It's like, leave it alone. This is our spot to fish. And I'm going, this isn't a secret. It's BLM land, guys. This is for everybody to experience. And that's what I want to share as a guide is – you can come here too on your own and go fishing. You're just using me to learn it and have this experience. You know, that's my mentality on it, not to keep it a secret. I think that's that's such a good um, perspective, I think, because especially for beginners, you know, like the the goal, if you really want to progress, your time on the water with a guide and the guide's time with you, mm-hmm. if you want to progress, it's got to be spent trying to get to a point where you've learned something that you can take and do on your own because unless you go put the reps in by yourself, however that happens, you don't have to live on the river and go every day and obsess. But Mm-mm. when you get the opportunities to go, you have to have some skills and tool sets to apply. Right. And that's Absolutely. the value of going with a guy like you that I see is that, you know, Philip can tell me, you know, you really need to fish this water that way. Not even like this fly or that fly. Cause that's, you know, but here's a better way, you know, to present better. Mm-hmm. This water holds fish, this place, this time of year, like those types of things that you can now go and practice. Cause if you don't practice at anything, you're not going to get better. Absolutely. And you know, that's where when I practiced, you know, I learned, well, then I learned it. Well, what did I do after that? I had to teach it to others. And so I took people to the encampment and I started teaching what I figured out in four months of fishing it every day and putting people on extremely high quality trout, like wild 18 to 22 inch fish, browns and rainbow. And it was a very special moment for me when these people had never experienced fly fishing before. And I'm putting them right into like the grand slam of things here. Yeah. And they're getting the full experience of what fly fishing really is. Not just like, Hey, we're going to run the little wool over your eyes and take you to the stalker Creek over here and yeah. throw a squirmy worm. I, you know, I appreciate that. And some, uh, I, I, no, I don't appreciate that. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. But we it, can say what fun. we want. It's a free country. You know, and that's it's certainly, fun. you know, it's fun to fight fish, but where, what gets me going is taking people to wild country and showing them that because that's real, not this man-made construct that's going on in some of the industry today. Um, what species of fish are you going after on the uh, rainbow okay. cutbow and brown trout? Cutbows, okay. Cut bow. So it's a hybridized t- trout between a cutthroat and a rainbow. Yeah, yeah. Are they okay? So 
do you i've caught a few of these in colorado um i don't have enough experience catching a lot of them but are there are there big differences between cut bows like what do they more resemble or or, i mean what do they more fight like you know what i mean i would say a cut bow fights more like a hard fighting rainbow absolutely they'll rip line off your reel and give you a good pull and lots of jumps but why i like them though they look more like cutthroat like i i was just at the encampment actually two days ago and uh, my buddy chandler caught a 22 inch cut bow and it had yellow and orange and gold on it in this like just purple hues yeah and it was just like the coloration on cut bows is very there's a that purple, yeah, yeah. Purple I actually, yeah. I, I painted, I painted a a cut bow. It's uh, lifting a cut bow, and as I'm painting it, I'm like, man, this has got a lot of purple. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like I, and I'm looking at the picture, like this is a purple, like gill plate. Like, it's I need to adjust the way I'm painting it. Like, it's not red, it's purple, man. Uh huh. So uh, that's interesting. So I really enjoy those fish for sure. Yeah. Uh, um. How do you like to fish it? Is it a fishery that you wade fish or yeah, drift? Yeah, so the then... encampment's really freaking cool. Um, okay. So what's cool is from about May through July, you can float fish this thing. Okay. And rafts or drift boats or rafts, both? drift boats. You're going to be buying a new one if you go through there. So Highly what's the deal with rafts. drift boats? Okay, so <laughs> if, you, if, you think that, if, if you think you're going to fish water that has a lot of boulders or you're going to be bumping off rocks or maybe you're just not like me, I can go down the river and I know basic rowing and stuff, but mm-hmm. I'm nervous to take the, my brother drift boat down places with white water and stuff, certainly that I'm not familiar with, but is the raft the better option for that type of thing? Yeah, but more boulders, more whitewater. Raft is a great option, a lot more forgiveness. Um, I've taken my 15-foot air raft in two inches of water, rubbing on rocks, and there's no concern. You just drag yeah. it, and you're in. What about ripping it or breaking it or something? like? Cause um, so not... ripping a raft, uh, yeah, it takes a lot. Um, yeah. If you're deliberately like, hey, I'm going to rub this rock, it's designed for that. It literally yeah. is. like Not to like go 20 miles an hour hitting a big boulder in the middle of the river. No, it's not right, or trees or branches or stuff. Yeah, or bad. But you say if you're like, Hey, I see this like little gravel bar and I want to scoot over it. It's literally designed to scoot over that. And like, yeah. if you aren't paying attention and you get stuck on a boulder, no harm. You might have a rub mark where a hard boat, I will say is a lot like, it's like the Cadillac, you know, you've got more room. It's more stable. You can stand and fish on it. It's a lot more high end. Yeah. Um, the time for that is uh, bigger rivers, less boulders. So like the Colorado River where I live here, uh, Granby, Kremlin area, yeah. is a wonderful hard boat area. You know, I see guys running hard boats at 300 uh, CFS, which is like, whoa, dude, that's really low water for the Colorado. But it's a wide kind of mellow river where if you know there's a boulder in the middle of the river, well, you just row around Get away it. from it. Yeah. Fine. And so, but where the encampment is, it's one of those rivers where you're in a canyon, it's small water, it's a lot of white water, and you have to go over an eight-foot diversion dam. So a raft, you actually have to carry, portage your raft around this dam, so you have to carry it. So like there's some, you know, maneuvers you need to know about, and a raft is like the only thing you can actually get through there physically without trespassing, because it's all private in this float section. Right. Um, uh, Floating it. 
13 to 14 foot raft. This is perfect. Um, yeah. It's a amazing fishery. It gets some of the greatest Western hatches, you know, like the, the biggest hatches I can name is uh, in the spring, you're going to see a lot of uh, blueing olive and then you'll get your drakes, your green drakes coming into like, yeah, first week of June, second week of June. And then also what's coming right before the green drakes, we get a massive salmon fly hatch in this area. Really so, cool. Yeah, you get yeah. salmon flies, blueing olives, green drakes. And then what gets me excited in this valley, and this happens in July, August, September, is the trichos. Okay. And everyone's like, oh, I hate, you know, you're psycho if you fish <laughs> trico, you know, like that's a saying here. Yeah. And, but I will say in this valley, it, it makes the fish drunk and stupid. Yeah, okay. Like you will literally see trico lines instead of foam lines in the river. Yeah. There's yeah. that many trichos in the system. You see a black line of bugs just flowing down the river. And right underneath yeah. it, you'll see all these silver flashes. You're like, oh, well, I'm just going to throw there. Oh, I got one. Yeah. And this, it makes fishing extremely simple. And cool. I would say um, the only time you want to dry fly fish the area is salmon fly hatch and green dray hatch. And green dray catch. Everyone's like, look at all the fish rising in the trichos. Well, you're psycho if you fish a trico and it's a size 26, you know. So the yeah. best way to do it, um, and this is a little guide trick, is you want to nymph. You want nymph, nymph during that, the trico nymph hatch. During the trico hatch, and that's as far as I'm going to go with that. <laughs> okay, um, okay. But if you have a trico pattern on your nymph rig during a trico hatch in fast water, you might find some luck there. Cool, man. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, how we love to fish the encampment in the North Platte in that area is the tricos from July through September, maybe fishing fast riffles. Got it, but not dries. No, got no. it. I know, well, everyone, but you can't. Like, can I say, like, are you going to see a lot of heads rising and there's a lot of fish eating dries? Uh huh. And you're, you know, and if you're personally fishing, absolutely, we're probably going to try to catch some fish on dries because it's quality and it's fun. Right. But when it comes to your job and guiding, you're going to want if just if you just want to catch a lot of fish, you want to nymph that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> What's something you learned recently on the encampment? Something I've learned recently on the encampment is how fragile this fishery really is. Yeah. Um, as we all know, last winter in 2020 into 2021, we didn't really have that much snow in the Mountain West. Yeah. Um, we all heard Montana basically closed down their rivers all summer. Uh, we had a voluntary closure here on the Colorado um, for half the summer. The Yampa and Steamboat closed all summer. So a lot of rivers were struggling. Well, and I should take back saying how fragile the encampment is. Excuse me on that. I should say how resilient the encampment is. Let me rephrase that. Okay. Um, why is here we are with all these man-made controlled rivers here in Colorado, and they are struggling. There's low water. There's this going on. There's that going on. Voluntary closure. Montana, same thing, but they're not really, there's a lot more freestones there, but they had a lot of low water. But something about the encampment that blew me away last year, I'm fishing it in August in a 90 degree day, and I'm temping it at 60 degrees. And it still has 50 to 75 CFS in it. And for why that river, that? why is that? It's a true, true freestone um, coming out of the Sierra Madre mountain range um, out of Colorado. And um, where this place is located, there's a lot of glacial, glaciers still left in this location in the Sierra Madres. Got it. And so what makes this okay. place special is there's a lot of glacial feed to it. 
and it stays cold all year. And so it's probably the coldest water you will find in the valley at any given time. Oh, that's interesting. And so what I mean, how, why is it resilient? Also, I told you about their stocking program. Um, they haven't stocked it in pr- almost 50 years. Um, yeah. It's got so much gravel and riffles and cold glacial water that these fish literally reproduce so well, the state views it as a better angling experience to leave it alone than to stock it. Because, I mean, 10,000 fish per river mile naturally occurring in this area. Yeah. It's, it's yeah I don't want to get too much into it, but I, yeah. I have read and heard that, you know, that there can be problems when you start introducing stocked trout into wild trout uh, ecosystems and such. I, I live know? it wholeheartedly every day and I'll yeah. touch a little bit of it. I just experienced it firsthand. Yeah. Um, so here in Colorado, we've ruined our cutthroat. Um, it's really sad. Uh, we basically, I mean, we have cutthroat, but they're all hybrid stocked fish now. Um, we introduced browns, rainbows, and brookies back in the 40s here. And the brook trout decimated our cutthroat population. All they do is eat eggs and they spawn completely opposite times of the year. Yeah. And so back in the 40s, you'd come out to Colorado River and all you would catch is cutthroat and mountain whitefish and a sucker fish called the flannel nose sucker. Mm-hmm. Um, but now since we've introduced browns and rainbows and brookies, you good luck finding a Colorado River cutthroat. Okay. Yeah. You'd have to go hike up to the high alpine to go find them. And yeah. when you go to the high alpine, nine times out of 10, you're fishing a lake that was stocked by CPW in 1980 with a plane. Mm-hmm. So it's just this reality of like, man, like this is kind of a man-made fishery in Colorado now. And like that truth isn't really spoken about, but mm-hmm. it's kind of the reality of it. Um, where in Wyoming, I went to this place um, just outside of Jackson, Wyoming. It's 60 miles south of Jackson, Wyoming in the Absaroka and Shoshone mountain range. Um, we fished this river that I'm going to leave unnamed. And it was literally the only thing that existed was native Yellowstone cutthroat and whitefish. Yeah. And it was never, and they close it six months every year where you can't even hunt it, drive your car in it. They just leave it be. And so that explained, like showed me the realities of stocking where I went in Wyoming with Betha. It, we couldn't keep the cutthroat after off our line when we figured it out. I mean, it was <laughs> one of the most quality fisheries I've ever been to, most pristine waters I've ever seen. Where here in Colorado, like I would say 90% of the rainbow trout I'm catching in the Colorado River have stalker genes in them. Yeah. You know, and um, you can see the difference. They don't fight as hard, they don't reproduce as well. They, um, if you put too much stock in the river, you're competing food source. So your fish actually will get smaller in the river, in my opinion, because there's more competition for food where in these natural rivers, when you let them be like mother nature always has a way. And, um, I hope one day, and I think Colorado's heading that direction that we eliminate stocking programs here and we let, let these rivers be and let them flow. Cool, man. Yeah. What's one of the most memorable fish that you caught on the encampment river? Ooh, <laughs> it's actually one I didn't catch. Perfect. It's one I guided. Um, uh, I was a first year guide and uh, it was October 15th in 2019. 
And I had two clients from Florida, of all places, from Clearwater, where I used to live. Okay. And I was like, wow, these guys are pretty cool. I want to give them a great experience. And then, and they wanted to float fish the North Platte. It was what they wanted to do. But I was like, guys, it's low water. We have to float way downstream to yeah. get some water to actually float in. And the fishing at this point is just not very good down there. So I was like, just trust me here. Come fish my favorite water. So we fished the encampment. And there was this guy, Tyler and his wife. And Tyler is an avid saltwater angler from Florida. So I took that as an advantage. And I said, well, it's fall, baby. We're going to throw streamers with this guy. Okay, awesome. Saltwater guy. He knows how to cast and strip. So use his strength, you know. So I used his strengths. It's fall. The timing, everything was there. And we fished the confluence of where the encampment and the North Platte come together. It's called Rainbow Hole. And uh, he caught himself a 31 and a half inch wild brown trout out of this spot. And it was about a 20 minute fight. It's the biggest fish I've ever seen in my life, even to today. I've been chasing this fish ever since I've started fishing. <laughs> right. I talk about this fish almost weekly about how <laughs> I'm on a mission. Like, have I caught a brown bush in 30? Uh-huh. But it's from Colorado and he eats pellets. Right. You know, it's not a real wild fish where this fish is from a freestone that yeah. had to fight his way for years to get this big. Yeah. And so it was just like, that was the most, honestly in my life, that's the most memorable fish I've ever seen. But it was one of the most memorable trips I've ever had too, because after that, the guy's like, well, I can't beat that. Now what, Phil? And I was like, well, <laughs> let's try something. These fish seem really aggressive. They're just rising everywhere. There's just so many fish in this spot just going crazy. So I tied on a 12 chubby Chernobyl. The chubby Chernobyl. I, was, I love the chubby. Let's go for fun here and see what happens. We started okay. stripping it across the surface like a streamer, and we were catching 18 to 20 inch browns that way. And he caught like six that way. Nice. And so that's, I mean, the encampment just has some of those days where it's just like the trout gods are looking down on me. Yeah. And it, the scenery is beautiful. What makes it yeah. so special for me is nine times out of 10, I'm the only one fishing there. It's, and that's why I like it so much. Maybe it's not. Like, yeah, there's wild trout, there's big ones, but I think what I'm chasing more than those fish is the solitude. Yeah. Because you literally can be out there and have three miles of river, and you are literally the only one out there. And the closest town to you is 400 people 10 miles away. Well, that's always special to have some time on the water by yourself. Yeah. uh, That's what's so huge for me is it's a very, it's a great place to find solitude. Plus to have all that history. I mean, I just think that's so cool to have like your, your grandparents or your grandpa and your father. And mm-hmm. that's really neat, man. So uh, I'm happy for you. One last touch on it. And then I'll waver away is uh, Matt Burmaster. Um, he was a, a guide for 30 years. He's retired now, but he was working at Brush Creek at the time. And uh, he was the only one that supported my decision on wanting to fish the encampment as a guide and not the North Platte. Okay. And so there was a few times, and this is how I learned the trico trick, is me being a first-year guide on the encampment, I'm literally looking at 100 heads eating dry flies. Yeah. And what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to throw a dry fly trico out there. You know what, Philip? That's what I would do too. Right? Exactly. So that's what I did. And I'm not catching anything. And here's Matt Burmaster 20 yards below me almost every cast. Dude, 
there. And he's got an indicator on it. I'm going, what a loser. These fish are rising. <laughs> I'm going to catch them on the dry. It's the it's the pure way to do it. Right. Yeah. Well, Matt, cheater, my, yeah, cheater. Matt goes, hey, Phil, come on over here. Check this out. And he showed me this rig, and I couldn't keep him off my line. I mean, I'm yeah. not kidding. I mean, and in a four-hour period, we had a 30-fish day. I mean, it was easy. I mean, it was unbelievable fishing. And from that moment, he kind of took me under his wing and uh, shared how special the encampment was to him and how he's fished it for 20 years. Yeah. And how, you know, it's always challenged him as an, as an angler where, like, there's, you know, there's holes where you can throw a nymph rig in every day. But then you can go down to this other spot and there's a 24 inch cut bow eating a 22 trico on the surface and you got to yeah. make a 60 foot cast to fool him. Right. And so this guy I held in a high regard and, and it's just one of those things. Every time I go to the encampment and fish, I hear his voice talking down to me kind of going, Hey, this is what I would do if it was me fishing here, you know? And so it's huge. There's a lot of special things for me on that river. And, uh, I really look forward to go back to it again and share it with more people in the right manner. Does he, do you get to fish with him anymore? I actually just fished with him and this is so special. He taught me how to guide. And then <laughs> three weeks ago, he hired me out of Kirk's fly shop at Grand Lake to teach his girlfriend how to fish. <laughs> and so me, Matt, that is awesome, yeah, so dude. Matt Burmaster, his girlfriend and I, we all uh, fished the Williams Fork right here in the local water. Yeah. And cool, uh, we got some really good browns and rainbows. And it was just like a, a, a big moment for me. Uh, here's the guy I've looked up to for four years in the industry. He's ran his own fly shop called the Little Nell in Aspen 20 years ago. So he knew, you know, he's been around the block in this industry and I've held him as a high regard. And when he told me, you know, I'm done guiding and like all my return clients, I'm giving them your number. Like you're my replacement. I mean, that was a huge honor for me. And so now he's like, a, a, I'm not an only child, but he's like a brother to me to go out oh, there man. and show that kind of stuff. And this guy's like 50 years old and I'm 27. There's a big age gap, but yeah. that's what's so cool about fly fishing. Yeah, man. It's brought us together and it's a lifelong journey. We'll never let go of. Man, I'm glad I asked that question. That's pretty cool. Um, a couple more questions on the encampment. Uh, if I'm coming up there, so you mentioned the Chubby Chernobyl, which I think is great because <laughs> I am a, a slightly below, I've said it before, but I'm a slightly below average tire. But uh, I can tie patterns that I like to fish with and I'm confident with, you know? So that's mm -hmm. enough for me. And then I can catch fish typically with what I uh, tied um, a lot of the time. For sure. So, so what, uh, the chubby is one of them. I think the chubby is really, it kind of looks a little complicated, but it's, it's really, it wasn't that hard and I'm glad that I tried it, but mm -hmm. are there some other flies that you would recommend to somebody who's in a similar ability level about going to the encampment like, oh. and, they, and they want to catch fish with their own flies? Absolutely. You could say, um, I can give you some basic flies. You know how I learned to fish that river? Yeah. Easy but to tie, you know, not as I like fish that river was a pink San Juan worm and an 18 pheasant tail. Perfect. If those aren't easy ties. I don't know what is. Uh, and I'm yeah. serious when I'm saying that, like a number 16 hook with pink chenille on it. Yeah. And then 18 inches behind it was an 18 non beaded though. No bead. So yeah. it makes it even easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no bead. And, um, 
just a 18 pheasant tail and the more of a slim, not like the fat chubby one, like a lot more betis long body style pheasant tail. So like yeah. a RS2 or dry fly hook is what it's tied on. Yeah. And cool. uh, that's what I used my first year on the encampment and they ate it. It was more yeah. so learning this river is more so learning where the fish are, not what they want to eat. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, obviously, you know, I want to figure out what they actually eat. Um, so my top, I'll give you like top six flies that are pretty basic. Okay, um, you can fish a chubby there all day. Um, when the green drakes are going chubby to a big parachute atoms, yeah. you know, and you'll catch fish during the ha- drake and salmon fly hatch. Um, yeah. Your main fly, though, you know what a Pat's rubber leg is. I know it. Well, it's um, not that black, hard. Dude, all I yeah. did like, two days ago <laughs> was fish a Pat's rubber leg, a pheasant tail, and an RS2. Yeah. And we had a day. Yeah. And the Pat's RS2s aren't leg, too tough either. They're not, not the too Pat's hard. rubber leg was like the fly of the trip. It really yeah. was. So you could literally go with the chubby and a Pat's and catch fish on the encampment all during right. the summer. But Good, man. my best rig I can give you would be pats pheasant tail to a small emerger whether you know the easiest one you know how to tie an easy one for me if no one knows about it it changed my life as a guide was a foam back emerger like yeah. a chocolate thunder or a copper ribbed rs2 it's literally thread and some foam and some dubbing it's three materials yeah and it it's probably the my biggest money maker as a guide cool man so that's how I'd fish that area. If you could only fish the encampment two days, you only had two days to fish it. Ooh. Which two days would you fish, and uh, what? How would you be fishing it? What Which rig? Two days what? I would fish the encampment. Man, that's a good one. Um, I think <laughs> <laughs> I think one would be like June sixteenth for sure. Yeah, I have to throw green drakes. There's nothing like floating the encampment on a raft throwing a big chubby to like a number eight green drake on the grass bank and watching a 20 inch trout clobber it. So (laughs) for sure. Trout clobbering flies is always. (laughs) And then honestly, another special time for me is uh, in September. Um, September 18th, I will say is a special day for me. Um, It's my mom's birthday and Beth's birthday. And it was the day Colton, caught a 26 inch brown trout out of the encampment two falls ago and um i've been going every fall ever since because of why um the fishing's not stellar it's not like when the hatches are going and the fish are going crazy it's more of it's no one's there because it's off season yeah fall colors are just wow yeah and the brown trout that find their way few and far between though in that river are once in a lifetime fish like Colton yeah. got a 26 inch and my client Tyler got a 31 and a half inch. Nice. And these are Browns that started as like a little off a of red and an egg hatched on a little fry. Yeah. And then made their way to 30 inches long in this river, you know, and it's, just <laughs> it's, it's crazy to think about that, you know? Yeah. And so those would be June 16th and September 18th would be my two days. Good. I, like, and a fall day. I like the specificity as well. Yeah. I'm a, I apologize if I missed it, man. Who's Colton? So, oh, you're fine. So Colton is like a huge aspect in the why I'm even a guide as well. Uh, we met on Instagram 
and we actually got hired to Brush Creek together. Oh, okay. So yeah. as a friend, I got he's you. a friend, right. and we guided together in Brush Creek, and uh, I moved out of Brush Creek, and then I told him about Kirk's, and now he works over here at Kirk's. And we're <laughs> just best friends, and I'm actually when we're done with this podcast, we're taking Betha, Isabella, and Colton, and my father to go fishing on the Colorado. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man! Yeah, that's great. I'm glad I'm a part of your fishy day, special yeah. day at uh, Wait Out There. All right, before we wrap it up, Philip, I have to ask you because I mentioned before I just moved out to Utah. Winters are coming, and this is my first opportunity to really be on home waters, like to have my own stream to explore and figure out and like go as much as I as I can. I still have responsibilities like family and and uh-huh. work and things, but I I'm going to be able to go a lot more. Is the point? And uh, but that opportunity has aligned with cold, cold weather. So I have some selfish questions for you about uh, winter fly fishing. Um, And I guess I'll start with how do you adjust where you look for fish as it gets colder or what, what what types of water you fish? Because typically when I've gone fishing, you know, I'm going on a trip in the summertime or I'm fishing water down in the Ozarks or things like that. So I just don't have, and I know how to read water fairly well in those environments, but how are you reading water differently in the wintertime? So let's kind of reel back from reading water and look at personality. Okay. So think of a human and their personality. We're warm blooded, right? Trout's cold blooded, right? Correct, Correct. I believe. I may have to ask my son who goes to school, but yeah. So we're warm blooded, trout are cold blooded. Okay. Okay. Um, And basically what happens here, what happens when it's 120 degrees, Jason, what do you want to do when it's 120? I want to get in the cold water. You want to get in cold water or you want to sit on the couch and be lazy and crack open a beer in the AC, something like that. Right. Okay. Where maybe, 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 but yeah, I get your point. You get my point. So this is what (laughs) I tell clients to get them wrapped around where fish are sitting. So when it's hot and we're not wanting to do much, we just want to sit still and not do anything, right? We're like, when it's oh, really it's hot. hot. Yeah. Okay. Now think of a trout when it's really hot and they're cold blooded. It's opposite, actually. They're trying right. to find oxygenated Warm. water, cooler water, and you're going to find that in riffles or really deep in a pool. Okay. So when you have a trout in warm weather, like we are in warm weather, they're finding colder water. That makes sense, right? They want to find, right. and that colder water is in a riffle where there's more oxygen right. or at the bottom end of a pool. And that's summer. That's what I'm talking about. But now we're going to yeah. switch gears to winter. Okay. When we're cold as a human being, what do we want to do? We want to exercise. We want to get moving. We want to yeah. move to the riffle and get work out and get warm, right? Right. Well, a trout, when it gets extremely cold, yeah, it actually goes opposite. They want okay. to go and be the couch potato. Okay. They're like, man, it's freaking cold. There's no food anywhere. Yeah. Well, they sit to the very bottom, deepest holes you can find, which we call the tail out of the run or the riffle, right? That yeah. slow, deep stuff that's four to eight feet deep. And why is that is there's not much food hatching. You're literally basically fishing worms, eggs, and midges all winter. Mm-hmm. And you got to think one little midge. Do you think there's a cal- like much calories in that? No. So they're going to sit there and literally wait for a midge to hit them in the face to eat it. So they're, they don't want to move around. Yeah, no, they sense. don't want to move. They're super lazy. They're couch potatoes. 
And so I try yeah. to get people to view like trout are a lot like humans. They're just opposite blooded. So yeah. like they have a personality when it's hot, they're going to get excited and eat because they have to keep moving to stay warm. If you will, like, I know that sounds weird, but that's how it is though. Oh, and then when it gets sense. really cold, they're like, Oh man, it's so hot. Like I got to sit down and, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's hilarious, but that's what trout do in the winter. So the first thing is you're looking for deep, slow tail outs. That's so huge. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And you're not going to riffles. You're not no, going no, no, no. behind, yeah, will, um, will you, you find know, fish in a seams riffle? off boulders and stuff? It's not you can the same. find a sea. You can find a sea meter, a riffle eater, but you're looking for that 50 degree sunny day and you're getting a midge hatch going and then they might move to the riffles, but 90% okay. of the time deep pools. And okay. then nymph, nymphing and streamers, um, streamer fishing. If you're bored and like to knock ice off your guides all the time and have like punish your hands, you know, yeah. but streamer fishing does work extremely well in the winter. Why along those lines of they're used to eating very small meals and not getting a lot of calories. Well, what if you throw a bait fish in their face? I'm more than likely a trout's going to go. That's a big meal. That's going to keep yeah. me going for a couple weeks. Yeah. And so streamers are huge. And then winter fishing, midge, 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 and more midges. Lots of midges. Okay. And five and X and six X tippets. Small tippets. <laughs> all right. Yep. And then I guess it becomes very important to get those flies down too. So you're either using, so if you're fishing midges, you're going to weight them with a split shot and stuff, or uh -huh. how are you going to get the flies down? What's so your, my how, how are you casting and presenting those okay. flies? So obviously indicator nymph rig. Um, I always nymph with a BB split shot and people are like, whoa, that's crazy. Well, that's really not. You just slide the bobber closer to the weight and, you know, you're shallower. But the thing is, the is you BB want, split shot? I yeah, size BB. It. It's the size of it. It's called BB, size BB. Okay. And it's a heavy split shot where you know you're going to get down. Okay. Like if I'm three feet down under a bobber, I'm probably going to be close to three feet down where that weight is because it's pretty heavy. Got it. And so then you're thinking, well, these trout are lazy couch potatoes in the winter. So we want to go deep and hit the bottom. If you're not ticking the bottom in the winter time, you're not really fishing. Yeah. These fish, that's are, where they are. That's where they are. Yeah. And the other thing is, is I mean, I hate to say it, but it's gotta be almost flawless, pleasant presentation, you know, really work on your good mending, work on those drag free drifts. Um, why you're faced with extremely low, clear water and right. the fish aren't mo and you're fishing the slowest pools in the river, right? So the most time to see it, most time looking. to see it and stuff. So you really got to work on presenting. And so that's how I feel. I've become a really good fly angler in Colorado is because when do I personally fish wintertime? Right. And so I work on good drag feed drifts, small 20 to 22 midges, um, two great ones. I recommend you trying. Um, I don't know if you have any tailwaters near where you live. Um, yes. But the neon nightmare and the demon midge. Uh, Matt McConnell is an absolute, like, amazing fly tire for tailwaters and winter fishing. Yeah, the demon midge I've fished before, and I had really good luck on up in Cheeseman Canyon with it. Mm -hmm. um, Chris Hansen showed it to me, and I've actually met that guy. He's yeah, really I tied him. He is a is a very nice man, and uh, yeah, that's a great fly. I caught a 
really nice rainbows up uh, the canyon, which is a hard fishery you mentioned earlier. And I, I've, I've been skunked there so many times, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm not, I've, I've progressed. I've progressed since I learned how to fish. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the demon image is a great fly. And I agree. So, and it's not that hard to tie either. It's, it's, really you know, not. it's not a lot of materials. And, um, so you'll you know. find in most of my fly boxes, easy to tie flies. And I might have 10 patterns. I'm yeah. not the guy that has 5,000 patterns and I'm like, Oh, yeah. which one's going to work today? You just stick with what works and you use it. Um, and then to, last but not least to help you on winter fishing and the community of winter fishing is if you're fishing freestones in the river, cause there's rivers that are open in the winter time that are freestone. Um, yeah. Stones and caddis fly. They have a two year life cycle in the river before they become an adult. Yeah. Well, the stones do the caddis more about a year, nine months. Yeah. But you got to think about that. That means their larva stage is always, always in the river. So mm-hmm. again, Pat's rubber leg in the wintertime is like golden. A On a freestone. Will, oh, yeah. On a freestone. A freestone fish will see that and go, wham, that's a good okay. meal. I'm going to take that. And so you just got to really like focus on, you know, if it's a freestone, stones, caddis, blueing, olive type stuff. If it's a tailwater in the winter, you got to go techie midges. Okay. Yep. Are there other things that are differences between freestone and tailwaters that you Huge. look at with uh, with Huge. presentation and stuff? So I wouldn't say presentation, um, freestones, fish. Or don't where really... you, or where you find the fish? Sorry. Oh, okay. So where I find the fish on freestones, you'll find them everywhere. You'll find them behind boulders. You'll find them in riffles. You'll find them in deep pools. You'll find them along the bank. Or mm. on tailwater, I mean, I'm sure if you've experienced this in Cheeseman Canyon, especially like they're like couch potatoes they know there's constant food coming out of that reservoir they Mm -hmm. find a nice deep pool and they sit in it yeah and why is think about it they don't experience the water temp changes so it's always just 42 degrees on these fish and cheese or whatever it is and they just sit there and just eat the same food over and over and the food hatches you see in tailwaters is more midge and betis you don't see stone flies you don't see a caddis larva on a stick, you know, yeah. you don't see that where on a freestone, you're going to find a lot more bug life. So mm-hmm. you can ar- already probably hear it. My voice. I personally like fishing freestones more than tailwaters <laughs> because one, you can get away with a lot more techniques of fishing. You know, what do you mean by that? More you can streamer fish on a freestone. Got you it. Can yeah. fish. You can dry fly fish. We're on a tailwater streamer fishing. Like, yeah, cool. I've heard about people doing it and having success at Deckers right on. But everybody knows if you want to catch fish there, you're going to throw a nip, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I feel freestones are more special is because they give you more lenience and opportunity and room for error. Because <laughs> the fish don't have it as, as easy, so they're more opportunistic. It yeah, and, like. and that's usually, true in the wintertime too. Yeah, and usually on a freestone, these fish, have, they have to work harder for their food. So they're when they see a, a fly, they're going to eat it right. You know, because they look at it as opportunity. What about gear, line, like anything like that that would be useful or helpful besides dress warm? You so know, the, I mean. the line you're already in because it's a cold water line, so you don't have to worry about any special line. Huge. Uh, get yourself some Vaseline or some chapstick and yeah. put it on your actual guides of your fly rod um, if you're fishing below 25 degrees. It okay. actually puts a little uh, barrier between the metal of your rod and the water droplets coming off your fly line. And okay. kind of repels the water because I can't tell you how many times I've frozen my line to my guides. 
Yeah, and I remember that a little bit in Colorado. The Vaseline trick really helps that. Um, okay. And then another trick, because I know a lot of men, and including myself, get really cold feet in the winter. I mean, yep. bad. So Colton, of all people, showed me this, my friend. You have an artery that runs right along your ankle, right? Well, if you get a hand warmer and put it on that artery inside your wool sock that you're wearing, it literally warms the blood before it enters your foot. So you're literally rewarming the blood because you yep. got to think your core is where the heat comes from. And yep. now you're all the way at your foot. That's the coldest point your blood's going to be. So you get an opportunity to reheat it down there. And what? let me tell you what a difference. I'm ending up with sweaty feet at the dream stream when it's 10 degrees outside. That's <laughs> awesome, man. Yeah. So do you have trouble like getting your boots on and stuff with that setup? Or do you um, have to like, because I've got a buddy out here that is recommended and I haven't made the decision yet, but boot waders because of this, because you can have them, it's more easy to put the the hand warmers in them and stuff. And when you're not hiking yeah. around as much, maybe that's useful, but I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't, for I haven't me, made that decision yet. Yeah. For me, um, I'm not a fan of the big boot waders cause it's a heavy boot and you've got to clonk around and I'm right. a big hike and fish guy. I hike yeah. a lot when I fish. So I like more lightweight on my feet. That's why I don't think I can do it. Even though it right. sounds like really but cozy and warm. Think I just about just a small gonna... little hand warmer, you know, this big. Yeah. Yeah about the size of a debit card and it's what an eighth of an inch thick if that maybe a yeah. little thicker i don't just know just get it in there and you just yeah. literally lay it flat right on your uh, ankle bone uh, just above your ankle bone actually yeah. and it sits happy there's like yeah. a little pocket just above your ankle bone where it sits and your sock holds it in place and yeah. i'll tell you you'll you'll forget it's there that sounds good, Matt. That's a, that's, a, that's a great advice. I didn't think I was going to learn about that today, but that's awesome. Um Okay. What about when you do hook up? Any tips for handling and releasing fish when it's cold? And you don't want to, you know. I, I mean, I know that for people that don't know, you know, you don't want to like just grab fish with your gloves on and things like that for the protective slime and mm -hmm. and those things. But so now I'm taking my gloves off. Now what? what? What other tips do you have for that person? Because so, you're going to see Jason freezing his hands off. In yeah. The river. So. Thanks, Jason, for sharing that. That's the biggest thing in winter fishing. It's just take your gloves off if you're going to handle the fish because right. of the immune system. That's huge. And then another thing that people aren't uh, aware about, and I was educated on it, you know, I became a guide through Instagram and taking photos of fish. Well, I right. fished a lot in the wintertime. Well, I didn't realize the fish are wet and you're holding them out of the water in freezing temperatures. I mean, sometimes I'm fishing and it's 10 degrees outside. And I'm mm -hmm. holding this wet fish and like, fr like you can see the frozen air particles. <laughs> and so I didn't even think about this, but you can no, really think about freeze their eyes and yeah. like their slime layer and stuff and actually really harm them. Right. And so basically, you know, keeping your fish wet as long as possible is like so key in the wintertime. Yeah. If you want to do a hero shot, by all means, go for it. You know, take your hero shot. But prepare right. for it. Be more conscious about the fish over your photo. And what I mean right. by that is like make sure your camera is ready to go. Make sure your gloves are already off. Make sure you're in position for your photo. Make sure your hands are wet before you grab your fish. And then mm -hmm. when you take your photo, you get five seconds. Yeah. You know, lift one, two, three, four, five, back in the net. Because yeah. that honestly to God, that water is a lot warmer than that air temp. 
Right. You know? Yeah. And so that is my biggest tip is just be more conscious of the fish and how they feel Dude. in freezing temps when you take a photo of them. I had literally, I just learned this three, four years ago. I know. That's why I'm asking the question, man. Yeah. And that's why I think it's, you know, we talked about it at the beginning of the show, but the importance of like teaching and learning and helping people conserve, right? Because if people don't know, then they don't know. It doesn't make them bad. They mm-hmm. just don't know. Like I didn't, I didn't think about that, but it makes sense, right? It's cold. Right. They're wet. Like you start freezing that water. It's going to, it's water. It's going to freeze even though it's on a fish. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's good to, that's good to know. All right. Anything else about winter fishing that you could share that that's going to help Jason progress this winter so that when we talk next year, I can tell you about all the yeah all um, the great memories you helped me make. The thing that helps me the best in winter also is a thermos of something hot. Yeah, that's a good uh, idea. So I bring a Stanley thermos and I always bring hot chicken noodle soup. Why? Because solid. You get chilled to the bone. I mean, I have stories of me yeah. sitting being you know on the dream stream at six in the morning because it's so busy throughout the day during february when the lake runners are starting to come in i got to be sitting on the dream at six in the morning so i can have this certain section before nine people are fishing it (laughs) and so i learned quickly your core temperature goes down and you can't get it back up very quickly even sitting in your truck for an hour with the heat like it's not going to come back up right so i learned a hot can of soup and when yeah. you when you pre-make it at home in a thermos, it fits right in your water bottle slit in your hip pack. Yeah. And when you get that, like, man, I just can't get warm. You yeah. fill up a cup of soup and drink it, and it's like a reset. And cool. it gives you an extra half hour, hour of before you get chilled again. That's awesome, man. Yeah. All right. Before I ask you my last question, how can people find out more about you, Philip, and maybe schedule a, a guided trip or any upcoming projects that you have? Um, so people can find out about me. Uh, my biggest tool is honestly Instagram, um, fishy nine. Um, and also you can find out a lot about me by giving me a phone call at the fly shop at Kirk's fly shop in grand Lake. Um, okay. you know, you can literally talk to me personally over the phone. You can meet me in person. If you live here in Colorado, we can talk fishing and talk about fishing the Colorado or even the encampment. You know, we actually have permits to go guide there out of this fly shop. And so there's a lot of ways to talk fishing with me by getting connected with Kirks and Grand Lake. I think that's the best way to have a personal conversation with me. Um, and I am always so excited and open to talk to new people, especially new people. Um, yeah. I tell this to my clients all the time. If you're an experienced angler, I kind of dread those trips because you right. have expectations and all this stuff. And when you're new and you're clueless, I love those people. Cause I get to share something new with you. And so that's my biggest thing is if you want to learn and you're wanting to get excited about fishing, come give me a call and we'll talk fishing. Awesome. One more thing, the, the kind of the future thing, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm here at a fly shop at, in Grand Lake and you know, I've had my dreams of being a guide and now I'm managing, but you know, as humans, we always want more. And for me, you know, doing this independently, is the ultimate dream here, you know, to go independent, run my own little outfit, um, getting water permits, you know, there's always a solution to go fish where you want to fish. Um, but I feel going independent would be my strongest way of instilling how I like fishing and how I want to share fishing. It'd be my best way to share that, you know, because in reality, you know, all of us guys working at a fly shop, we're still under that fly shop umbrella. 
and we got to respect that. And we're going to go ahead and create great experiences for that fly shot because that's what we're here for. But the, the main reality is, is, you know, we, we I want to do this independently. And I really want to share this with as many people as I can without that umbrella. Well, I wish you luck. And I'm sure that uh, it's not far away. And um, I look forward to, to seeing that part of your journey, man. Okay, last question. If you could go back to when you started fly fishing and give yourself two pieces of advice, one more tactical and one more philosophical, what would you tell yourself to help you progress as a fly fisher? Um, tactically, which is more hands-on, I would definitely say learn your knots. You know, it took me until I was 13 or 14 to actually do that. Where my dad, my entire childhood, I'd lose a fly, I'd be, Dad, I need to fly. So tactically, learn your knots, you know, as a kid. And I know when I was a kid at seven, I could have learned a knot. You know, it's not hard. So that would have been huge for me was knot tying. I probably would have caught a lot more fish when I was younger. Philosophically, lose the expectation. Um, that's, I'm still learning that today. Um, having expectation when you go into fishing is not okay. Why? Well, you're setting a way it's supposed to look for yourself. And if it doesn't look that way, what do you think is going to happen? Me, I know I get disappointed and frustrated, right? Yeah. And it kind of taints my experience for that fishing excursion. Yeah. The best example of that that I can think of is when you plan a fly fishing trip. Like with my dad and my brother, we're going to go out to the, the big horn. We're going to catch, it's going to be trichos everywhere. We're going to catch all these fish. And then yep. you get there and it's like, oh yeah, I forgot fly fishing's kind of hard. A hundred percent. And so like, yeah. that's, that's huge. It's like, just lose the expectation. Why is because you never know what's going to happen in fly fishing. I've learned that. Um, yeah. I had expectations, you know, when I taught Betha how to streamer fish, and here's a short example of it is, oh, Betha doesn't know how to streamer fish, you know, she might catch a fish today, whatever. Well, Betha didn't have expectation. She just was out there hucking a fly in the water and moving it around, didn't care. I was expecting her to catch fish, right? And I was expecting to catch fish. Well, I ended up catching like nothing, like literally nothing. I got skunked that day, if I remember right. Betha caught a 28-inch cut bow, her biggest wild fish, out of the Colorado at Pump House. Like, very, like, rare fish that you're going to catch in this section. And why is that? And I feel like her expectation. I And I know this is, like, hippie, but it's philosophical. I truly believe fish feel you. And if you're trying to force it because you have this expectation of, I know this hatch is happening and I'm going to catch this fish because it's supposed to be this way because I've done it this way before, you're going to have a really bad time. And I've put myself in that mindset more times than I'd like to admit. Where someone like Betha, who's been one of my greatest teachers for this, is there's zero expectation with this woman. And she absolutely has the best time on the river. I mean, is always happy, always free, just having a great and catching huge fish. And for me, telling my little kid self that, to not have expectation, I feel like I would be a little bit better off where I'm at today with expectation. Cause this is for me is a lifelong process Yeah, to lose expectation well, on the water. I think that's great advice, man. Both of it. Um, but certainly, 
the expectations that we have uh, can get in the way of a great time on the river for sure. So I appreciate you sharing that. And thank you very much for what you're doing, sharing your ideas and, and uh, with all the people that come out to fish with you and all the people listening. I appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Philip. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it as well. It was a real treat. Thanks for listening to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes. For more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork, check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, wait out there.